0: Right, take, uh, take your Bibles and uh, just open up to Matthew chapter uh, 5, and uh, again, we're just doing the Beatitudes, so we really only have uh, one verse tonight uh, from Matthew, although we'll have a lot of other places, actually, to, to jump around uh, in Scripture. Uh, but let's read Matthew chapter 9, and then we'll just pray quickly to ask the Lord uh, to bless His Word. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 9. Uh, Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Uh, Let's pray. Our gracious God, we just ask that you would bless your word this evening That as we think about it, as we reflect upon it, uh, even as we discuss it, Lord. We pray that your word would come with authority, that we would see that we are to be peacemakers, that you would encourage us and motivate us uh, in these things, and that you would uh, use your Holy Spirit uh, in, in your precious name. Amen. When we say the word peacemaker, what, what pops into your head right away? If we just throw out the word peacemaker, what, what do you think? Examples, ideas, what comes to mind? Okay, reconciliation, good. Resolve conflict, great, great, good. Mediator, that's another good word. What else? Any individuals or or even historical figures that that come to your mind when you think of someone who's a a peacemaker? Jimmy Carter. Carter. (laughs) For better or for worse, I guess, depending on where you stand. (laughs) Who else? Anybody? Other images that come to mind? For some reason, and this is probably a bad example, but there was that old Western pistol. Called the peacemaker, and I could not get that out of my head when I was preparing for this, but that has nothing to do with being a real peacemaker. Uh, making peace with others is, is about reconciling with people, about solving problems, about, about fixing things and, and bringing healing, and, and very rarely in situations where, where we're involved in making peace is, is it one side that's 100% wrong and, and one side that's 100% right, now, now, typically, if we're involved in it, we might think that we're 100% right, and the other person is 100% wrong. Uh, and obviously, when it comes to God making peace with us, he's 100% right, and we're 100% wrong. But, but most times, in, in earthly peacemaking between individuals, uh, you, you just think about solving fights uh, with your kids. Sometimes, as a parent, you're a peacemaker, and, and it's always, you know, very rarely is, is one of them perfectly innocent in, in whatever caused the fight. Uh, so our main point tonight is simply uh, make peace with others. Make peace with others, and 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 being a peacemaker takes a an, an active involvement. Uh, peacemakers can't just sit back and, and let you know like let the fight solve itself. Uh, no conflict was ever solved by the person reconciling it, saying, "Well, you just figure it out uh, for for yourself." Um, It it takes involvement, and oftentimes when when we're involved in peacemaking, particularly if we're one of the parties that was was wronged or has been wrong, uh, it it involves a measure of sacrifice to to make peace with someone. Sometimes if we're the wronged party, we've got to say, okay, I'm I'm willing to forgive, and and that can be very hard and and difficult. Uh, Sometimes if we're the party that that, uh, did the wrong, uh, we've, we've got to humble ourselves. And that can be tough to come to somebody and say, you know what, I was really wrong. Particularly when maybe we were wrong about some things, but we're, we can't get over how the other person wronged us. And, and we've all, I'm sure, been in those situations where where it can be really hard to to go to this person that's, that's your enemy or you've had this fight with and be the first one to say, well, I was wrong. They're, they're, human nature, there's, there's this tendency to want to to want to save face, to not be the first one uh, to, to kind of yield, to, to stop fighting, to, to risk something, to go out and, and make peace. But, but as believers, we need to, to be peacemakers. Uh, we talk about these, these Beatitudes, and, and every week that we're in the Beatitudes, I, I try to stress that these are things that are blessings that come upon children who are in the kingdom. So, so these are not things, well, if I do this, I'll get saved, or, or this is what I do uh, to get blessings. Rather, it is that, that those who are repentant, these are the character traits we take on, and, and these are blessings that, that flow from God. Uh, it, it is a blessing to be transformed by Him, and, and being transformed by Him, and then living in, the, in, in these ways, taking on the behaviors of, of godliness and the kingdom of God, There is a blessing if we are are people who make peace. And in this passage, the blessing is that we shall be called sons of God. Uh, And and we'll talk about this a little later, but just kind of to introduce it, it it doesn't mean that, well, this is how I get my adoption or how I get into the family of God. But it's, it's more of this idea of when people see me making peace, they'll say, wow, they have a godly character. Being a son of something or or someone is is not here a, a reference to genetics or anything like that. It's a reference to bearing the traits, looking like someone. And we need to keep that in mind because as you think about making peace, and this is kind of the first thing tonight, God is the one who makes peace with sinners. So the reason we'll be called sons of God is you think about the character of God. And, and I think when we think about all the attributes of God, all the the imagery of, of God in, in the scriptures, you know, being a king, uh, sometimes in the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament, sometimes being a, a warrior, uh, being a refuge, being all of one of the ones I think we don't maybe emphasize enough is God being a peacemaker. I mean, I mean just think about what that means for a minute. God and it's very easy as in biblical language to conceptualize him as a king, right? But then being one who, who comes down and, and makes peace uh, with enemies. Typically in the ancient world, kings would crush people by their might, by their power. And it's like, well, if you don't bow to me, I'm just going to steamroll right over you. Uh, but a peacemaker isn't someone who just runs right over people when they, when they don't get their way. Um, So, uh, numerous times in Scripture, God is called a God of peace. Uh, If you want to write some of these down, uh, I'll just read them off and and then read the verse to you. Uh, But Romans 15.33, Romans 15.33, May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Romans 16.20, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus with you. So here's this imagery of triumph and Satan being destroyed and and being crushed under the saints of believers believers ultimately will triumph over Satan. But, he, but God is described in there, Romans 1620, as a God of peace. First Thessalonians five twenty-three. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and make your whole spirit, soul, and body to be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 3.16 Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way, and the Lord be with you all. 1 Corinthians 14.33 For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Second Corinthians 13.11 Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live at peace And the God of love and peace will be with you. I think we're more used to talking about God being a God of love, and and rightly so, than we are about thinking about God in terms of being a God of peace. How is God, let me ask you this, how is God a God of peace? Okay. Right. Yeah, Adam and Eve in the garden, that, that's a great example. I mean, they were in rebellion, and even though he judges them and kicks them out of the garden, yeah, he, he makes peace. He, he gives that promise in Genesis 3.15, the woman will have a seed that's a ultimately a promise of Christ. So even right from the get go, there's this plan to, to rectify things, to, to make peace. How else is God a God of peace? The idea of I want to elaborate that a little bit.
1: <laughs> well, Shalom is what? Like Greek book of Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: And, uh, peace, contentment, all uh, of
1: this. That's, that's what we, want. we really yeah. want that. We don't want anxiety. We don't want... We just want peace. Yeah. It's
0: like go false sleep. Yeah. I, I think, especially in our day and age, people running to and fro from this and that, and you have technology, and everything just goes faster and faster. I, I think that's one of the biggest needs in our, our culture, this idea of peace. And, and, and it... You know, it overlaps with that idea of contentment, something that 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 satisfies us. That, like you said, that shalom, that just calming, things are right with the world. I'm I'm where I need to be. You, you know, you think about the new heavens and the new earth. That that's the kind of peace slash contentment. You know, God's shalom covering covering the whole earth. Let's uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's actually where uh, we're going to go next. Let's uh, o- turn over to to, to Romans uh, chapter five, uh, verses verses ten and eleven, and and this really is where you know I think one of the great passages how how God is a peacemaker, um, and and we sometimes even forget I think uh, when we talk about our sin. You know, you know, there's a lot of ways you can talk about it. You can talk about sin as being corruption. You can talk about sin as being uh, guilt. But, but we should also talk about sin as being rebellion. And, and rebellion has images of, of war and, and a lack of peace and, and being enemies. So, so uh, somebody want to read Romans 5, verses, verses 10 and 11 there? So, so I think Michelle had said at the beginning that imagery of reconciliation, what do you think of when you, when you think of peace? Yeah, we were enemies with God. I mean, we were at loggerheads. There, there, was, there was not peace uh, between us. Uh, obviously, you know, back to the Garden of Eden, we're the ones that have rebelled against God. But, but this is what our sin is, and, and each one of us uh, is born under this sin. So you, you think of uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, we, we are by nature... Uh, children of wrath. Uh, we stand as, as God's enemies. And, and it's not, it, in our sinfulness, it's not just passive enemy. It's not just, well, okay, I'm, I'm guilty of, of breaking the law. Uh, it certainly is that. Uh, but, but it's, it's active uh, rebellion. Um, so, so you think about, you know, okay, a, a person that gets pulled over for speeding They've, they've transgressed the law, but the cop pulls you over and maybe you're nice to the cop. That's, not, that, that, that's breaking the law, but that's not necessarily active rebellion. Uh, our, our sin is both breaking the law, but, but active rebellion uh, against God and, and against his goodness and, and against his kindness. Um, uh, Cornelius Van Til, who was uh, a founder of uh, one of the early professors at the seminary that I went to, um, obviously, he was from the early 1900s, so it's not like I ever met him. But but he described, I guess, in, it was in one of his works somewhere. He described seeing a a father and a child on the subway or on the train uh, going into town, and and the father is holding the child on on the lap, and and the child is, be, you know, how little toddlers and terrible twos kind of get in that rebellious phase, and they just, you know, they fight with all of their gumption to get out of the lap and and even maybe try to hit the parent and you know how it is when they throw a tantrum uh, and and he says you know in effect that is who we are in our sin you god is the gracious caring creator who who in him you know the scriptures say in him we live and move and have our being uh, the 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 sinner draws breath every day because of the just the general goodness and kindness of god and and what do they use that breath to do to to actively rebel against God the that child is is upheld in the lap of his his father and what are they using all of that care to, that the father is giving them to do to to actively strike out against the parent uh, that's what our sin is that that is the the, the we are not just sitting there okay i'm in this state of sinfulness we are actively subverting God or trying to, anyways? And you, you know we're le- we're leading a rebellion. It's it's it would be like if we lived in France during World War II, and and you know you were you were hiding out and you're rebelling against the German government, and and you know there it was a good thing to be in rebellion. But imagine if it was a good kind king, and here you are plotting to do bombings and plotting to to subvert the government and overthrow it, and and that makes us an enemy. You know, when the cops arrest, you know, domestic terrorists here in the United States, we go, this is horrible. They're rebelling against our good laws. You know, despite everything that we might think is wrong with America, we, we also look and we say, God has given us so much good things. It's wrong to rebel. Well, how much more is it when we rebel? So, so for while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more are we now reconciled? uh, Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved uh, by his life? And so some of this is what Paul is doing is looking forward to the future coming of, of the salvation we have. And the idea is if we were enemies and God made peace for us, how much more now that we are in this position of being children of God, will we be guaranteed that, that salvation, that, that full outcome? You know, if, if God could come and, and reconcile himself to us and us to him while we were in open rebellion, don't you think he's going to take those of us that he's adopted as his children now, now that we're in the family? I mean, he, he took us from being enemies to being in the family, which is, you know, metaphorically speaking, that's a huge move. How simple is it? For him to take us now that we're in the family and say, well, I'm going to finish what I started. You know, if I could come this far, don't you think I'm going to do do the rest? And, and that's that's kind of what Paul is, is getting at here. Notice it says we were enemies. Uh, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. God is the one that draws us to himself through the death uh, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ's blood uh, paying uh, the penalty for sin on on the cross god did not sit around and and wait for us to say to him i surrender I'm, i i want to make peace with you and and then god it's not like god waited for us to you know raise raise the white flag and say you know what are what are the terms and conditions of of ending this war and then he says oh okay well you're ready now i will I will send the Lord Jesus Christ to die on the cross and we'll, we'll take care of sins. God actively goes out and seeks to make peace by sending the Son to die for us while we were enemies and in rebellion. So, so it's not like he waits for us to, you know, like in war where you, where you beat down the enemy and then the enemy's ready and, and they'll finally listen to the terms and conditions. This is God going on a peacemaking mission against people that are that are trying to do everything they possibly can to stop this peace and to live in open rebellion. That's the kind of peacemaking that God does. And now you think about that, and you think about who do I need to make peace with, and what do I need to be willing to do to make peace? Sometimes we say, and, and I've, I've been guilty of this, you know, like, well, I'm not going to make peace until they're ready to come to me. It's just too much work. Uh, they're not going to listen. And sometimes we have to be the ones that, that extend the overture first and, and even raise uh, the white flag, so to speak. Let's, uh, Colossians chapter 1, let's, let's flip over to that. And does uh, somebody want to read that when they get there? Not the whole chapter, but, but verses 19 to 22 of, of Colossians chapter 1. Michelle, you want to read that? Yeah, uh, 19 to 22. What does what does reconcile mean? We we saw that word in Romans five as well. What does it mean to reconcile? So to balance or to together. Okay. Yeah, balance, draw together, good. any other Nancy? Restore a relationship—that's a great way to think about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, end hostility. Uh, you know, reconciliation is is the idea of of making peace, uh, ending anger or war, extending uh, extending friendship, bringing estranged people back together. You think about a family reconciling, solving differences can include can include reconciliation. Uh, sometimes, you know, we, we think about reconciliation in terms of, of part of the peacemaking process maybe is to, to pay back debts or, or give something up because of the way that you've wronged someone else. God makes reconciliation with us through the shed blood of, of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 20, making peace by the blood of his cross. The blood of, of Jesus Christ reconciles the sinner who believes in Jesus, reconciles him to God. It makes peace. But notice it also says, through him to reconcile all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by by the blood of his cross. Now, now this doesn't mean, and, and some people wrongly take this verse to say, well, see, everybody will get saved because... Everybody's you know just going to be it's universalism, right? Everybody'll just go to heaven because God reconciles all things, whether in heaven or on earth. no, what what it's talking about is is think about the curse of sin. Think about the Garden of Eden and and because Adam is the head of all creation, what happens to to creation when Adam sins? It's like Sunday school 101 what what? <laughs> Yeah, it's all condemned. It's, it's all cursed. Why do you go out in your garden and have weeds in your garden every year? Uh, you can thank Adam and, and Eve for that. Uh, you know, I don't, I hate pulling weeds. I'm glad my wife does that because I'm just like, I don't, I don't like dealing with that. Uh, you know, you get, your hands get dirty, your back starts to hurt from bending over. I mean, but, but creation itself is, is in rebellion against God. Uh, because of man's sin. Why do we have death? Why do we have disease? Why do we have cancer? Uh, why do we have, you know, mosquitoes sucking our blood? Now, I, I guess mosquitoes existed before, before the fall, but, but I'm, I'm kind of hoping they didn't bite and suck your blood before the fall. Um, you know, even, even, you know, you think of, of the rebellion of, of creation with, with hostility now between man and animal. Like, you can't walk into a lion's den and, and not get bitten. Whereas if, if we were ruling over creation as God set us to, and creation was in line with God and man, it'd be able to, you know, hi there, kitty, and walk into the lion and, and pet it. And this is why one of the great hopes of redemption is the lion and the lamb will, will lie down together. Uh, creation will be at peace. And, and Christ shedding his blood not only restores repentant sinners to God, but the ultimate hope is is extending this peace again through, through all creation. Now it has to be first God making peace with man and and we need to accept uh, what Jesus has done on the cross, otherwise uh, we, we still stand under condemnation. but God making a, a renewed people uh, will also lead to God renewing his creation, the new heavens and the new earth the, the, you know finally the temple comes down, and the glory of God will dwell through all creation and and the whole world will, will be at peace. Why? Because God in Christ is reconciling uh, all things to himself. And part of this, you know, we've been talking about the kingdom of God in Sunday school. Part of this is, this is Jesus as the king. He ends up fulfilling Psalm 8. You know, all things are put under his feet. He's He's the true human being. He's going to be the second and, and greater Adam. He's just going to rule over all things in a kingdom that finally establishes peace, creation will be in order once again as it was supposed to have been uh, in the Garden of Eden. So, so peace starts with the individual, you and I having peace now with God. That entails forgiveness of sins. That entails uh, an end of the war. But, but you, you, know, you think about the effects of peace. You think about like World War II. What, what were the long-term effects in Europe uh, out of the peace that happens at the end of the war. Well, you know, yeah, in history it's not perfect, and, of course, we have the Cold War, but, but, but by and large, you think of places like France and then West Germany and stuff. I mean, the peace led to prosperity, and that, that's just on a human level. Uh, think about that on a human and divine level, God establishing this peace uh, within his creation. We have a number of places in Isaiah that talk about the gospel in terms of establishing peace. Isaiah 52, 7, we're probably all familiar with this. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, and publishes salvation, uh, and who says to Zion, Your God reigns. This is, you know, how blessed are the people that take the gospel out. And what are we saying in the gospel? We're saying that, that Christ has died for sinners and it is now possible to be at peace with God. Your your sins can be forgiven. And and part of the gospel message is, is publishing peace. Don't you want to know God? Don't you want to be forgiven of your sins? Don't you want to enjoy peace with God? Uh, we, we, I think in our culture we... we we lack some of the language anymore. We, we used to have a culture that was generally familiar with the Bible, even if you weren't saved. Uh, and, and right away, you could go to someone and you could say, do you want peace with God? And oh, yes, of course. Well, now we have a culture that doesn't even use the same idea or language when you, when you talk about God and doesn't even always have the same ideas of what peace uh, should look like. You think of how, how Buddhism and stuff might talk about peace and just kind of you know, the, the internal be at peace with yourself uh, kind of mentality that runs around in the culture. The idea of publishing peace is saying we are enemies with God and we need to be reconciled. And the gospel does that. We have to be careful that when we, when we share the gospel, we lay out both the consequences of sin, we're not at peace with God, but also how God has resolved that. God sent his son to die. We can be at peace with God. I think in our day and age, again, with that that sort of anxiousness that we have going on, we we take peace as more of an internal reality. You know, I feel at peace. I've spent time meditating today or or whatever. Kind of I quieted my own heart and soul. Um, But peace really begins with a reconciled relationship with God. It's it's if I can use it this say it this way it's an objective reality first before it's a subjective reality it's it's a, a change in my status with God before it becomes a feeling in my heart does does that make sense and and I think sometimes in our day and age peace is all about this internal side of things. And, and so much so that people can talk about being at peace without even actually talking about uh, the gospel or God. Isaiah 53, 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By His wounds we are healed. This is just getting back to the blood of Christ. How is peace made? Christ's blood is shed. The punishment that we deserve is poured out uh, onto Christ. Isaiah 54, 10, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart with you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, uh, says the Lord who has compassion on you. And this is talking about God restoring the sinner and and bringing God's people back, uh, and this covenant of peace can't be removed. Isaiah 57, uh, I have seen his ways, and I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. So second this evening, so we talked about how God makes peace and God makes peace on that, that sort of vertical level, if you will, you know, God in heaven and us here on earth and, and peace is made that way. Uh, I want to talk next about how peace is made sort of on a, on a horizontal level. The fact that we have peace with God means that we should have peace with other people, particularly those of us who share in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, uh, just uh, language again from Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter nine, verses six and seven. We're all familiar with this from for, for the Christmas season, but listen to what it says: For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I think sometimes we we just, you know, and, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I wonder sometimes, like, do we really notice all the times that scripture talks about peace? And, and all the ways that it, that it uses it. I mean, there are a lot of, of verses that have to do with God uh, dealing with peace. I mean, I read a few from Isaiah, but it's, it's fascinating when you when like dig into the context and look at the larger picture there that's going on. Inside the church, then, Jesus is our peace. Uh, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, would someone like to read verses 11 uh, through 17 of Ephesians chapter 2. If nobody jumps and reads, we're just going to end up being here longer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 11 to 17. <laughs> So, who are the two people here, people groups, that are not at peace, have a general hostility between them? Yeah, it's Jew Jew and Gentile, Israel and Gentiles. Uh, And, and, you know, in the ancient world, that that was a huge cultural slash ethnic slash religious division. it, you know, a, a modern day agna- analogy might be between you know modern day Israel and the Palestinians. You think about how long the warring has has gone on and and the fighting and and to even just try to get to get two groups of people to sit down in the same room and negotiate peace. You you just think about how hard it is. You, you might think about uh, you know like uh, you know during the 80s you might think about in Northern Ireland between between the Irish and and the British and just that that hostility that has has gone on just for for years and years and years and, and and to get these two people groups together and then to say, hey, we're we're one in the body. I mean, you can just imagine the tension that this would bring it at a church service in the first century. You know, here you are, you've been a good Jewish person all of your life. Uh, you heard the gospel, you heard that Jesus is the Messiah, you say, hey, this makes sense, this is the fulfillment of, of the Torah, this is, you know, this is all the promises that God has given us, wow, I believe these things. And then you're going to have this Gentile come in and, and sit down uh, near you and, and have communion with you, uh, these, these dirty people who don't keep the law, who, who lived their entire lives, Ceremonially unpure, and and you know they're they're pagans. Do you know who they worship before they came to our church service? Uh, and you want me to to eat a meal with them? This is you know one of the things going on in Galatians that that you know you realize they've eaten pigs and ham. I I would I'm a good Jewish person. I w- I would never do that. You know maybe even somebody saying you know my great-great-great-granddaddy fought with the Maccabees and his great-great-granddaddy was fighting for the Romans and trying to kill my family. And you want me to get along with them and, and be together in the family of God? How does Jesus make peace between these two people? The cross. Yeah, the cross. Another thing that you think about here, you have this reference to uh, the dividing wall of of hostility. Even in the temple, you have the temple with the inner, uh, you know, you have the temple court with the altar, and then you have the holy of holies, or the holy place, and then the holy of holies. All of that temple court, there was a wall around. And on the outside of that, there was the court of the Gentiles, so that even if a Gentile said, you know what, I, I, I would like to worship the living and true God, it'd be kind of like, that's nice. You stay on that side of the wall. Remember, we've been talking in Acts about how Paul got arrested uh, because they thought Paul had done what? Brought an uncircumcised Gentile into the temple. I mean, they were ready to kill him for that. Uh, this was real hostility. So, So even... Even some might be willing to say, you know, like, great, I'm glad you found the living and true God. But stay over there. You know, don't don't get too close to me. Don't bring your your Gentile impurity around me. And then you want to sit down in the church today and say, hey, we're equal. You want to make this Gentile guy an elder in my church? And I grew up going to Sabbath school knowing the Torah? Like, how, how dare you? It, it, you know, there are, I think, modern day analogies to how we think about race, how we think about people from from other places, how we think about people who grew up Christian versus people who didn't grow up Christian. And and you think of the the unbeliever who comes to Christ and they they walk into the church with a tattoo on. Oh, my goodness. You know, they're not they're not clean and pure like I am. Um, You know, God has made peace and that person is a, a brother and sister in christ and and you'll notice here um he's done that first by by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create for himself one new man in a place of the two so making peace so there is no more this court of of gentiles versus court of jews like like we don't have in our church like you know these seats up here are for the messianic jewish people and and all the rest of us myself included who aren't jews will will go sit in the back uh, but in the same way like we shouldn't we shouldn't have any other kind of division like these are the good seats and those are the bad seats or maybe since we're kind of baptisty these are the good seats and those are the bad seats i don't uh, i don't i don't know uh, but the, these hostility walls have been have been torn down so much so that the ceremonial wall this idea of Keep the uncircumcised and the, the alien in the land. Don't let them celebrate Passover. Keep them outside the temple. You can look at some of those things in Exodus. But Jesus is the peace. And the way he's done this, it says first in verse 16, that he might reconcile us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So notice, notice what, what happens here. We, we are reconciled to God. There is that, that vertical aspect of the relationship. But then, because we're reconciled to God through the shed blood of Jesus, through the cross, we are in one body. So the way God reconciles us is he puts us in Jesus Christ. And every believer is in Jesus. But the effect of that is, every believer is in Jesus meaning some of us aren't closer to Jesus than other people. There aren't two bodies, you know, like one group of people is in Jesus and they're Jewish and they're more special. And one group of Jesus uh, is in Jesus, but there are those Gentiles that we don't know. We're together now. We are one body of of Christ. Uh, So it's like this. If I have peace with God and I'm in the body of Jesus, Don't you think I ought to have peace with somebody else who's in the same body of Jesus as me? I mean, that is the foundation for peacemaking. And that's how we're supposed to be peacemakers. So verse 17, he came and preached to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Uh, There, it's going back to some of the early things in the chapter. that The Gentiles really were alienated from God. They really were, you know, they weren't under the Old Testament covenant promises most of them had never heard the word of God. They didn't have all those things that, that if you grew up an Israelite that you, that you, you knew just by heart, they never had celebrated Passover, didn't know what it was. So you have these people who are near to God that have, you know, they, they grew up just in a, you know, like we would say, like in a Christian home. They grew up hearing the word of God. They, they generally knew who God was. And when the Messiah comes, they hear this message of peace. They hear the gospel and they believe. Then there are these people that, that grew up, if you will, far from God. They went to the pagan temples. They they ate they did all the not only the ceremonial uncleanliness, unclean but but they did all the other pagan sins, maybe you know, even sexual immorality or or all kinds of other things. And God has come now in the gospel and preached peace to them, and guess what? We both have the exact same peace with God. Doesn't matter if you were close to to hearing about God when you heard about him, meaning like you grew up in a good Christian home or environment, or if you were, humanly speaking, far from God, as in like no one had ever told you these things and it was completely alien to you, and and you you went from being really way out there in rebellion to being, wow, I'm close. It it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter... You know, it doesn't matter when we think about Christian testimonies. It doesn't matter how much sin you had in your life before you were a believer, because we were all sinners. Like we don't get to say, uh, you know, well, I grew up in a good home. That makes me a better Christian off the bat. I had I didn't have as far to come. You you you're kind of worse because you came from farther away from God, from from stronger or more prominent rebellion than I ever experienced. I mean, it's the same grace of God that moved that sinner that moved you. And if the grace of God hadn't done it, n- neither of us would be believers. So we don't get to kind of like look down our nose at people and be like, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that you can really be a mature Christian because I know what your background was like before you were saved. And, it, well, it wasn't like mine. You know, you didn't, you didn't grow up in church you know whatever whatever it might be so that's kind of the motivation for being a peacemaker first God is a peacemaker Uh, second Christ is the peacemaker particularly inside the church so the last thing then tonight is we need to be a peacemaker be a peacemaker because a peacemaker is called the son of God so the notion of sonship here is is to be like someone uh John 8:44 Jesus says to the, to the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders you are of your father the devil and you will and your will is to do your father's desire. Now, physically, biologically is Satan the father of any wicked person or or sinner? Like biologically no, right? He's a fallen angel. They can't have they can't have kids. But this idea of Satan is your father is this idea of you act like him, you live like him, you are doing what he does, you are you are in a sense bearing his image by the way that you're living, in an analogous way. Why are peacemakers called the sons of God? Peacemakers are called the sons of God because it's you're you're bearing his image, you're you're doing what he does. Now now as a Christian, you are a son of God. You are Legally adopted into the family, and there's that there's that transition there from being outside the family to being in the family, but but as Jesus is talking about it here, is it's it's like we would say to someone who goes out of their way to show kindness, be like, wow, that that's really godly, wow, you're you're really showing Christ's love. It's it's this idea of you're you're bearing His image, you're you're being a a child of God, and and you all want for your own children that they would. They would, you know, live the way you've raised them to live, you know, when they get in trouble. That's not the way we raised you. Uh, You want them to to carry the better things in your personality and your dreams and goals and desires and, and moral compass. You want them to carry that on. We raised you a certain way. In the same way, it's this idea of you're in the family. God wants us to look a certain way in the family and that's being a peacemaker. So let me, I have a couple uh, scenario uh, ideas for when we have to make peace, but let me just kind of maybe be a little more uh, discussion oriented. What are some ways that we have to work at making peace with others? And if you have a personal example of maybe someone that made peace with you and it surprised you, or maybe you had to Sacrifice something to make peace with others you're you're welcome to share it, but what are some practical ways that we can be peacemakers saying we're sorry. all right, saying we're sorry, yeah, if we've done something wrong, yeah, what else, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sometimes you have to approach people peaceably because they're angry with you and you just need to humble yourself and say, rather than being like, well, I haven't done anything wrong. They should come and make peace with me. Nancy, you were going to... Yeah. 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 What are some other ways that we can be peacemakers? I had a pastor who who mentored me, and um, he said, you know, when you're a pastor, believe it or not, people come to you with complaints. I I know that's shocking, but um, but, but he said, oftentimes, people might come to you in in all the wrong ways, they might come with all the wrong attitudes, and, and he said, oftentimes, if you if you boil it down and, and you get behind that and all the things that, that they may be doing wrong or thinking wrong about, he said, most of the time people have some sort of good concern behind that that you can identify with. And you can at least, it, it's kind of that idea of, of trying to see where they're coming from. That, that, you know, they might be irate with you that you did something, but really, most of the time, you know, most of the time they're a believer in, and somewhere deep down under there, and it may just be a small sliver of things, it's like well, they're concerned about this or that, you know, and, and that concern, maybe they're taking it and using it the wrong way, but, but we do have to, like Nancy said, kind of see it from their perspective, you know, like why is this bothering them, why are they so upset about it, rather than just being like, oh, well, they're just being stupid and ridiculous all over again, and, and, but, okay, well, what, what's making them think that way? And, and if you can find something where you can at least identify with them, you can at least, in some way, hear their concern. And, and maybe you can't advocate the solutions that they want, but you can at least say, you know, your concern is good. I'm, I'm listening. I, I hear what you're saying. And, and you can just be compassionate uh, towards, towards them.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. A couple other scenarios. So I, th- I think one good scenario where we need to be peacemakers is if you've been wronged by someone, oftentimes we need to go to them and, and see uh, what we need to do to, to make amends. Uh, so Scripture says, I'm sorry, if you have wronged someone, yeah. Uh, so Scripture says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Uh, you think about Zacchaeus when he comes to repentance, and and what does he say he'll do? You know, if I've cheated anybody, I'll, I'll pay them back uh, four four times what I owe them. So so sometimes peacemaking really does mean humbling ourselves and and getting down there and saying. I really wronged you, and and y- y- there's no reason that you should forgive me, but but what can I do to make this right? I, I think the hardest situations are are when both people feel this need to kind of save face, and and it's kind of like playing that old game of check-in where like nobody wants to break away first, because uh, you wanna you wanna have that dominance over the person, you wanna win this and and so you, you might say well okay I did a little bit of wrong but 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 they really wronged me you know they wronged me more than I wronged them so I sh- they should come to me and sometimes we even assume well if I go to them well they better see what what they did because I'm seeing what I did you know it making peace doesn't always work that way and and I, th- I think just as believers we we, we got to get out of this mindset of people owe me that it's, we got to get out of this mindset of, well, I'm going to look foolish if I humble myself first. You may have a scenario where you have to go and tell someone you did something wrong. And they might say, you know, they might just get all prideful about it and be like, that's right. You know, you, you really wronged me. And so that you you might never get them to come and say, you you know, ideally making pieces about both reconciling, but, but, we just know how life happens, and sometimes that person, they might be totally clueless about how they wronged you, and you'll go to them and you'll you'll say you're sorry for what you've done and make peace and amends for what you've done, and they'll just be totally clueless to how they offended you or upset you or rubbed them the wrong way and And I think there are times there there are times where you you need to draw that to people's attention where you say, look, you really, I really feel like you wronged me as well. But there are other times, I think, where we need to stop trying to just be prideful in our own self and and stop being with this sort of, well, they owe me the apology too. And just say, look, I'm doing what it takes on my part to make peace. I'll let it in God's hands, whether they're going to do what I think that they should do. We need to be able to sometimes just let things go like that. Not saying that it's easy. It, it is not easy, and and even so, you know even sometimes it can be an ongoing battle in your mind. Like you go to them, you made peace, but you know a week or two later something hits you and it still bugs you that they they just didn't see what what they did to you. Um, second scenario, uh, if someone comes to you seeking to make peace, don't neglect their overtures. Don't don't make these hoops that they have to go through. The, the sort of, they're coming to me to make peace, and that, that kind of mindset of, well, I'm not sure if they really mean it. You know, that, that we'll wait and see what happens. I, I mean, how would it be if, if that's how God made peace with us? Like, we come to him in repentance, and, and he just sat back and said, well, let's wait a little bit to see if you're really serious here about being sorry. Now, there is always the danger, and we have to be careful. There are people that will just mouth the words, and they'll, they'll abuse you by, by just coming and saying, oh, I'm sorry, and, and then they'll go right back out and do the same thing. At the same time, we can't get bitter and hardened and and just be like, well, I'm not going to make peace with them until I see if they're really sincere. Do you know what I mean? I, I think we need to be willing to. Part of, part of the thing about making peace is it actually – it actually takes a sacrifice on our part to, to be willing to forgive. You think about how God made a sacrifice to forgive. You think about the um, parable of the prodigal son. As the son's returning, the father runs out to greet him. In in that culture, that was that was humiliating in a sense. That was the father uh, debasing himself by by going there to greet the son. It, it would all you know. It, it's, it's analogous to you know, if a king were to step down off his throne and grow and greet the lowly peasant that's coming. I mean, we would never expect a king to do that. But that's what God does for us. How much more do I need to not be like, well, I'm in the right, and until I see that they're really sorry, until they make it all up to me, I'm not going to forgive them. We have to be willing to actually let go of where we've been wronged. That's part of how, how we make peace. Uh, realizing that, you know, the same blood that covers my sin is the same blood that covers their sin. Um, I think a third scenario where we sometimes need to be a peacemaker is, is when we're a third party to things. Sometimes we need to be involved in, in bringing people together. It takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of gentleness. There's a, a finessing of it. But sometimes the mindset, particularly in the church, Sometimes the mindset can be just, well, I'll stay out of it. You know, that's between them. But, but sometimes there, there are appropriate times. You know, we don't want to be like meddlers in, in every little thing. But sometimes you just have to look a brother or sister in Christ in the face and say, you guys need to make peace. You know, it's just like you would do if, if someone in your family was fighting. You, you would say, you know, blood is thicker than water. You know, get over this. Get back together. What? You know, sometimes you maybe need to be the person that says, I'll go with you. I'm not going to take a side, but because I know this is hard, I'll go with you. Or maybe you try to make the arrangements like, hey, I'm going to have you over to my house. And don't surprise somebody with this, you know. Oh, hey, <laughs> what are you both doing here? But, but sometimes you, you say, look, you know, why don't we just get together over a cup of coffee just hear each other out maybe you even are a little bit of a go-between and you say to one person I know this person I know they mean well I know they wronged you but I know they mean well or you say to the other person you know well you know maybe if you took the first step you know maybe they would be willing because I know they're hurting just as much as you are Now sometimes when, when there's people at war we can be so overcome by how hurt we are and how wronged we've been that we, we almost don't see how the other side feels the same way, so that it, it's, no, no side is willing to kind of drop the weapon first because they're afraid they'll be taken advantage of. I think that's one of the things about, about peacemaking that's, that's the hardest, being willing to kind of go first and say, yeah, maybe we don't have the best of track records, but, but I, especially if you're a brother or sister in Christ, I need to make peace with you, and I need to, to try to trust you. Here, uh, a little bit. There's a lot we could say about Scripture, about living at peace with all men, as much as is possible, live at peace with all. Um, but, but I tried to focus most of my stuff on, on applications uh, between believers tonight. Any closing thoughts or, or comments? Love is one of those things where we all know we should do it. We all say we should do it. But sometimes I don't think we always realize the sacrifices that it takes to genuinely love people. I think especially inside the church. You know, we, we just live in a day and age where, where everybody can talk about love and the church being loving. But, you know, I, I've seen it. You know, somebody has a fight with somebody in the church. And, well, I'm just going to go somewhere else because I don't feel loved here. Or... That person didn't love me and where I think where love really where the rubber meets the road is when you're really willing to endure with people. I mean love is is, we live in such an emotional subjective culture and love is not just an emotion or a subjection subjective thing. It's love takes work. I mean, love. Love takes sacrifice. It's like all those things they tell you in premarital counseling. You know, when you go and you're going to get married, you're like, "Oh, we're in love," and and it's all that starry-eyed. And and you try to, when you're doing the premarital counseling, you try to like shake people out of that and be like, "Yeah, a year from now, two years from now, it might not be that starry-eyed love." Let's let's talk about what love really is. Let's talk about how Christ loves. Let's talk about, you know, love means putting up with your spouse, throwing their dirty socks on the floor when they get home uh, and, and working through it rather than just, you know, how dare you? Um, let's, uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we just need to work better and, and harder at being peacemakers. And uh, we need to, to have that tangible sense of the peace that you've made with the gospel uh, through Jesus Christ, you've made peace with us and, and that it would, it would motivate us uh, to be peacemakers. Lord, help us to, to, to do that more, to, to seek out those who, who either have wronged us or, or maybe even that we've wronged and just make peace with them. We know, Lord, it's not easy. Help us to be diligent with it. Help us to be patient. Sometimes peacemaking is a, is a process, a series of steps. It doesn't happen all at once. But help us, Lord, especially inside the church, to just pursue peace with one another, to really love each other, and and even do the sacrificial Christ-like things where we need to. In your name we pray. Amen.